Let's share our points of view. We're back, kind of, at Dead Aunt Thelma's, thanks to the magic work of our engineer, Mike Moore. Thanks, Mike, for putting your energy back uh, toward my ability to talk to artists. And today, I'm talking to Krista Vernoff. Krista is showrunner and executive producer of ABC's long-running hit series, Grey's Anatomy, which was already picked up by the network for a 17th season, and Station 19, which is in its third season on ABC and has already been picked up for a fourth season. She was the head writer and executive producer of Grey's Anatomy for the first seven seasons of the show and then returned as showrunner in season 14. She's won a Writers Guild of America Award and a Golden Globe for Best New Television Series, and she was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Writing for a Drama Series for her episode of Grey's Anatomy, Into You Like a Train. As an exec producer, she's been nominated twice for an Emmy for Outstanding Drama Series for Grey's Anatomy. Krista, what an incredible span of work and so much celebration of that work. Susanna, thank you so much. It's it's wild to to listen to you read that. It it it's yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Oh, you're so welcome. It, it's been an absolute blast. Um, we met here in Portland. I wanted everybody to know, and some of you definitely may remember. Krista was working as an actress here. Yeah, that's why it's wild listening to you read that bio because hearing your voice and thinking about Portland helps me uh, puts me back in that era of my life. And I'm so aware of, of just all that's transpired since then. It's just wild. Yeah. Including a beautiful daughter, a beautiful daughter. She's and a beautiful. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. uh, Go ahead. She's 13. She just turned 13. Yeah. I have two beautiful stepsons. They're 15 and 19, uh, and, uh, and a wonderful French husband. (laughs) <laughs> right. I, I, I saw that one of your stepsons was making macarons and I just, I thought, oh boy, okay. Hmm. No planes right now. Oh, well. Man, that kid bakes like you wouldn't believe. And it's really, I just said to him this morning, I came down and, and I looked in the sink and saw that he was making chocolate mousse uh, this morning before I woke up, he was making chocolate mousse. And I said, maybe we should just change our goal for this period of lockdown to who can gain the most weight. <laughs> I love it. Oh so my gosh. I feel like we're really accomplishing something here. So I'm curious, have you written um, any work that had to do with cooking? Well, no, because I'm a terrible, terrible cook. I'm a terrible cook. Um, it's just not my thing, uh, which is, uh, why it's, it just cracks me up that, you know, that Adrian can bake like a French pastry chef. Like it's, it's amazing. Oh, it is. And I'm totally insanely jealous. (laughs) I'm Um, pretty lucky in my lockdown. Yeah. (laughs) So I gotta, I've gotta tell you, thank you, question mark. Um, because (laughs) I started watching Grey's Anatomy because of this interview, And, you know, in 2005, when the show first began, I had two little kids and I was working. So 
that was not a part of my universe. But apparently now it is a part of my universe. And <laughs> I thought, what the hell? Why was I not watching Grey's Anatomy? Um, and I am loving it. It's pretty addictive. Oh, it's yeah. fabulous. And and it's so interesting because, you know, now my older daughter has gone off to college and younger daughter as well. And I remember way back when watching shows at that time where there were a lot of beautiful people and surely Grey's Anatomy is one of those. And I always thought, oh, it's so annoying. They're all so beautiful. And then as I my kids got older, I'm like, oh, kids, they're all there are a lot of beautiful people. So I, I have like a new appreciation for the beauty of these people too. <laughs> you know, Grey's Anatomy has a lot of beautiful people. It also has a lot of beautiful people who are like beautiful on the inside. Mm-hmm. That's what I love uh, about Grey's is yes, you know, listen, it's a hottie hospital, you know, but, right. um, but there's a lot of people who care really deeply on that show. And I feel like at this, particularly at this moment in time, where it feels like we are dealing with a morally bankrupt culture. Um, It's good to tune in for entertainment, sexy, funny, good time, uh, hottie doctor hospital entertainment that actually reminds us that it's okay to care deeply and to be motivated by doing good and by helping others. Yeah, I agree with that. It's it's so fascinating, and I wonder how do you go back in time I, for research purposes? Because watching season one for me, it's so fascinating to see your lead character, um, you know, experience the world of two thousand five. Yeah, it's wild to be writing a show that's been on for sixteen years. Mm-hmm. Um. Because, uh, you know, yeah, she's experiencing the world of 2005 and she's also experiencing the world through the eyes of a, of a you know, 30-year-old. And mm-hmm. now the show has had to evolve as the characters have aged and evolved. It was a show where, they, where our leads were the students and now it's a show where our leads are the teachers. Mm. It's, it's been a real evolution and it's been wild for me because I was there for the first seven seasons and then I was gone for seven seasons. Right. And it to be to to just to even be able to say that that I left a show for seven seasons after writing it for seven seasons and then it was still there and they asked me to come back and I had to sit down and watch seven seasons that I had missed um, and just it, it, it's been it's it's really a rare thing a rare and it's a privilege and it's an exciting thing to see this show and to be a part of this show's evolution and to find new ways to, you know, to write it well, to keep the quality up and to let these characters continue to evolve and learn and grow and uh, age. Were there some characters that you birthed that were killed in that seven year interim? Oh yeah. Yes. And that was enraging and devastating. (laughs) I, I was thinking about that because, you know, as a viewer, you really come to love these people. They feel like friends and then they're ripped away from you. And I would imagine it's even worse for you. Well, I, I don't know if it was worse for me because the fans, man, they become invested in a way like when you're making the show and you're birthing the show, you're writing the show, you have an understanding that the show is fiction because you're living your real life and then you're writing this fictional show. 
but there's something for the fans where when they watch it, some of them really use the show. I think they use the show the way I used to use books as a child. I used to use books as escapism and disappear into them as if my own life didn't exist. And, you know, I wasn't allowed to watch much TV as a kid. And so what I think is that a lot of our young fans, even our older fans disappear into this show so that when a character dies, it feels like the death of a friend. And mm-hmm. I think it's really painful that for them, for me, um, the characters, well, Susanna, I don't know what season you're on, so I don't know if I should give anything away. I don't know what, you know, <laughs> well, you go ahead. I, I can, I'm going to still watch. It's pretty devastating. Um, for me, uh, the I my favorite relationship on the show to write was uh, Mark Sloan and Lexi Gray, and mm. I left the show in season seven, in the end of season seven, and it was like I think it was like early season eight. I, I may be wrong, but it was season eight or season nine that they killed both of them (laughs) and I was still friends with with the writers on the show and they called me to sort of warn me like oh if you're not watching you should maybe watch and it was like it was really it was really upsetting (laughs) Mm. I I would imagine and it it's just really interesting you're constantly given that opportunity through your writing to experience grief and loss. And I know you had a very personal loss with your father many years ago, but a play I believe grew from, is that true? Yes. I, I, my dad died in 2001 and, um, uh, and I wrote a play, uh, about it. And I also wrote some episodes of Grey's Anatomy about it in season three. Um, that was the one that you were nominated for an Emmy for, correct? No, no, no. I, I was nominated for an Emmy for Into You Like a Train, which is was season two. And it was a two people get sucked together on a pole after a train crash, a train mm. moment. Mm. Um, but I wrote in season three, uh, a two part episode called uh, Six Days. And so it became Six Days Parts One and Two. I, it actually I think it might have been Emmy nominated if it had been allowed to stay one hour. But what happened is that the script ran so long the director, it, it came in like 23 minutes over. And instead of cutting it, we decided to add to it. So we made mm. it a two part episode and, um, and it was very autobiographical about my dad's death, but I wrote it as the death of George O'Malley's dad. Mm. Um, and yeah, I wrote a play. It's the only play I've ever written. Um, and I, I, I loved, uh, you know, Susanna, I come from theater. We met doing theater and mm-hmm. I worked in Portland. I worked at, I was thinking about it after, before I got on this call with you, um, that I, I spent two years working at, um, artist repertory theater and I worked mm-hmm. at Don Horn's company triangle mm-hmm. and, uh, and at Portland center stage. And those years were really joyful years of my life. And, um, and, I was raised in the theater and I was educated in theater. So my, I have a BFA in acting from Boston university. And so for me, you know, when you, when you're in the theater, there's a certain arrogance about being in the theater where you kind of look down on television and film actors. Like (laughs) you're like, you might not be getting paid anything to do theater, but you're doing the real art, you know? (laughs) And, And in a strange way, I adopted that 
I didn't look down on TV and film, but I, but theater in my mind is elevated. So the attempt to write a play felt daunting and frightening to me in a way that writing movies and television doesn't. So I, I'm very, very proud of my play. And, um, I produced it, you know, I produced it at a small 99 seat theater in LA. Uh, when I, when I wrote it, I mean, I produced it like 15, 16 years ago and, um, and it was produced in New York as well. And just in the last few months, uh, we've been sending it around looking to workshop it and, and, and do it again, but to age the characters out, like we're, we're, look, we're talking about changing it, but I, my career and my profile have changed so much since I wrote the play that suddenly, you know, there are name, name actors and theaters and things interested. So it's, I'm excited. Mm nervous again. <laughs> oh, that sounds so great. It that's so fascinating. I, I love how you talked about how, you know, your love of theater really helped you in a way kind of come to the other genres in a a different kind of feet, you know, with a different sense of the weight of it. I was less intimidated. Yeah. It, it, it's whereas I think that people who don't grow up in the theater maybe think of television and film as the more intimidating forms, mm-hmm. but I was not intimidated by attempting to write TV and film in the way that, that I was when I sat down to try to write a play. Yeah. You know, as I'm watching Grey's Anatomy, I am thinking, you know, how, how did you bring your voice to the show that was Shonda Rhimes created the piece Mm-hmm. And, and then how did you merge into that world and bring your own voice? Well, when you're writing television, one of the, one of the unique skill sets required to be a television writer is the ability to merge your voice into the voice of whoever created the show. So you are mimicking you in, because that's how we do it. You, when you produce 24 episodes of TV, it's a team of writers, each taking turns writing a script. So you have to be able to write in the rhythm and voice of whoever created the show in order to create some consistency. Mm. And so what happened is I was, I had been writing TV for several years and I had a job on a show called wonderfalls. Um, which Brian Fuller created. We did one season of it for Fox and it was a delightful little show, but I was really sort of failing as a writer on it because Brian's voice was very specific and unique and just different from mine. His voice and his sense of humor were so different from mine that I was really struggling to write in his voice and I was being rewritten and that was hard. That's hard. Uh, and so when I, what I did is I set out that staffing season, uh, which is sort of the period of time when all the shows are looking for their writers, uh, and you read all the pilots that are getting made. I set out looking for a show where I would succeed, which meant I wanted to find a show by a creator whose voice was naturally similar to mine. And when I read the Grey's Anatomy pilot, I called my agent and I said, um, Like if I didn't know better, I would think I wrote this in like a fever dream. This is my voice on this page. Mm. So similar. And I need a meeting on this show. And he said, I don't know. I don't think that's that one's going to go. It's got Patrick Dempsey. He's a pilot killer. It doesn't have any heat. And I said, "Um, I need a meeting on this show. I need to meet this woman because 
I need to. So uh, that a that story goes to show that nobody in Hollywood ever knows anything because Patrick mm-hmm. Dempsey was a pilot killer and became the biggest TV star of of you know a generation again uh, mm-hmm. from that pilot. But I sat in, I met Shonda, and you know we just um, hit it off and we talked about American Idol and that's really all we talked about in our job interview. Mm. <laughs> And she hired me and very quickly, the fact that my voice matched hers, um, I became her go-to writer very early on. She understood very quickly. Like my, I was assigned to write episode, what was episode five, but we ended up shooting it third because my script was ready. Like it Mm. was just very quickly that she recognized that I was writing with a very similar voice and, and I became came her head writer pretty quickly. And, um, and I was the natural person for her to come to when she was ready to step away from the show and wanted someone else to run it after, you know, 13 seasons. So, yeah, that's, that's so fascinating. I I imagine your acting history and expertise really helps you in that. Yes. Yes. I, I think that my education as an actor has helped me tremendously. And, um, and I have also found that my favorite writers uh, in the writers' rooms over the years are always people who are trained as actors. There's just an ability to subvert, you know, subvert your own. You, they teach you in acting school how to eliminate all of your own natural cadence, all of your own natural physicality. You, the whole education in a conservatory training program is about how to take your body and voice to neutral mm-hmm. and then to build on top of it. And so, yes, all of that education has really helped me as a TV writer. And and also the reason I like to be in writer's rooms with people who once were actors, because we can jump into the characters and we can improvise together. We can have arguments, you know, what Tony Phelan, who, who went to Yale drama and I used to have arguments in the writer's room as um, you know, as Meredith and Derek. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so, yeah, it's. All of those skills come into play. Uh, So you wrote a bunch of pieces during uh, the height of Me Too, which I I, even as I say that, I don't like saying that the height of it's ongoing. Yeah. Yeah. And I I wondered how, you know, the Me Too movement has impacted you as a writer, as a woman in Hollywood. Uh, Where what are you thinking about in regard to that? You know, at this time, I mean, certainly COVID is really taking over our world in terms of thinking about the right now. And this is another really weighty issue. Um, I, I, yeah, COVID is like changing everything and, and Mm -hmm. I don't even know where we're going to come out of it. Um, I was just talking this morning to, to, to one of the actors, uh, who's in the pilot I was supposed to be shooting. You know, we shut down the pilot two days before we were supposed to start shooting it. And Mm. we're supposed to shoot it in a few months or whenever we reconvene. But I was saying, I don't know, am I leaving the kissing scenes in? Am I leaving the group scenes in? I don't know how COVID is going to change everything. In terms of Me Too, um, it has definitely changed Hollywood. And it has definitely changed um, how we how we relate to one another in the professional environment and how we write. It was funny as I was watching Grey's Anatomy and thinking about COVID and all the incredible shows, medical dramas, that will be forever impacted. And how will they go back to the writer's room with masks, with, you know, PPE, 
with all the garb now that is absolutely required in a hospital setting? I just have no idea. I have no idea what it's going to look like. I have no idea what we're going to do. Gray's Anatomy and Station 19 rooms are scheduled to gather in May. Um, and that's going to be the first conversation is like, are we, how are we addressing this? You know, I don't feel like people are going to want to come out of months of dealing with a pandemic into episodes of TV dealing with a pandemic. I, I feel like TV is our escape from Mm -hmm. this particular subject. And yet you're right. Can we depict a world responsibly on television that doesn't look different that where, where if I have a feeling that social distancing is going to be the new norm for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that we can ignore that in our television making and be responsible. So these are the things that we're thinking about. And, um, and I look forward to being in at least in a virtual room with the other writers soon so that we can talk about all of it. And, and, you know, and we're lucky at Gray's Anatomy that there are several doctors in our writer's room who are currently on the front lines of COVID mm. you know, where when I have friends who come down with symptoms, these are people I can get on the phone and, and get the most recent up to date advice and counsel. You know, I have a, a fr young friend who had COVID. She hasn't been tested, but I'm certain she had it. And, mm. um, and her doctor who was not dealing, who was not working in an ER or in an urgent care clinic was prescribing her a codeine cough medicine. And mm -hmm. the doctor I called who is on the front lines of COVID was like, do not let her take that medicine. It is slowing down respiratory function. Like oh. there's just no leadership. There's just no information and it's crazy making. Yes, so it is. I'm, I'm so grateful to see uh, California, Washington and Oregon partnering through our governors with really showing some leadership where it is just like a vacuum. Yes. I'm grateful that they're no longer pretending that there's leadership that's at the national level. It, yes. They seem to be stepping into a vacuum. And I, I, I said to my husband this morning, I've never been more grateful to live in California. Yeah, I agree. I feel similarly in Oregon. Um, yeah, I agree. So um, I, I wanted to share with everyone some of some things about your writing process, because I think I know there are lots of people who are writing and maybe even COVID's bringing on lots more people writing because people are home. But I, I wondered how you begin your writing day and how do you structure it? Well, I'm the least, um, I am a little bit uh, allergic to ritual and routine. Um, mm. This is a thing that I know, I know from, from managing, writing staffs for a long time now is that people tend to fall into one of two categories. People tend to be, uh, all about ritual and routine. And when they are, they think that that's the only way to write. And then there are people who are allergic to ritual and routine. And we think that people who are, who have rituals and routines, well, we, we either think they're crazy or we think they're superior to us. <laughs> but okay. Now I am of the, the latter category and uh -huh. so speak to that one to, you know, how do you pump us, pump up those of us who are, uh, I would say all over the map in a beautiful way. Mm -hmm. 
I will say, I will, I will tell you how I was set free from judging myself from my crazy process. Um, I took a personality test. Uh, I had a cousin who was, who was in like management, uh, there's like a, there was like a personality test that he would give to people to learn how to better manage their employees. And when I took it, he looked at it and he said, you will always do your best work up against a wall at the 11th hour. You procrastinate as a necessary part of your process, not because you are chaotic. It's just how you get your juices flowing. And if you would stop judging yourself for that, you, your life would simply be happier. And that was a miracle for me because prior to understanding that about myself and that that was a valid process for some people, if I was given three weeks to write a script, I would procrastinate for the first 18 days, but I would beat myself up for the whole 18 days that I was procrastinating. So I wouldn't enjoy my life. What happened when I was given permission to not have a ritualized, you know, write a little bit every day for three weeks process when it, when it was like, Oh, that's okay. Then I just started to enjoy my life. Like I could procrastinate, but I could hike. I could go to the movies. I could (laughs) enjoy that period of time that I was procrastinating with the knowledge that at the end of my procrastination period, I would be frantically writing for 18 hours a day and I would still make my deadline. And that's what what it looks like for me is, (sighs) is now whatever the deadline I'm given is, until it is wildly short, I can't do my best work. Hmm. I love it. That's, I'm sure that's going to give lots of people uh, a little boost. I mean, it's really just about going like, have you been this way your whole life? Yes. Then that's probably your process and maybe you should stop judging it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so when you're thinking about a TV show season and like a film, how do those arcs differ or compare? Well, when you're thinking about a TV show season versus a film. So a, an episode of TV is actually structured quite similarly to a film. A film is structured traditionally in three acts. And a TV show, at least when I started out, you would think of it as a short film. So you'd write the three acts, but then you would put a false act break in the middle of the second act. And that's how you got to your four acts. And that was a commercial break. Mm. Now, uh, TV tends to be written in five or six acts because they've added so many commercial breaks. So, but you still kind of think of it as a, as a film structure. Um, an episode, a season of episodes of TV. I don't even relate to a film. It's just a completely different thing where, Mm. although, yeah, no, I don't. It's not similar. I was just trying to, I was, I was just now thinking, could you think of it as a film? Like where the first eight episodes are, you know, act one, but that's just not, that's just false. It's just not how we, 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 uh, it's like, you know, it's 24 little movies and hopefully they come together for sure. You build peaks and valleys in your season, but those are usually in network television forced peaks and valleys. So on Grey's Anatomy, for example, and on Station 19, there's a mid-season finale. Uh, sorry, not on Station 19. On Grey's, we do mm-hmm. 24 or 25 episodes. And at the end of episode eight or nine, there's going to be like a six-week break, right? So they they take you off the air at the end of November, and they don't bring you back till the middle of January. 
So that's that episode in November is called the mid-season finale. And you're you're always building some cliffhanger into that episode that's going to make everyone come back in January because there's something they need to know. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. all there's there's a lot of structures like that 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 I never really stop and think about. But um, I was w- loving looking at the future on Grey's Anatomy, like online and seeing what actors, you know, are going to join the cast when I'm continuing to watch. And so many are from musical theater. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you're, have you come to Sada Ramirez yet? Like, where mm-hmm. are you in the show? No, it was so funny. I'm only in season one, episode four. Oh, <laughs> oh Susanna, you've got such a ride ahead of you. This I'm is- so excited. So you're going to see my first episode is the next one, I think, season one, episode five. Um, Uh Yeah, we got great, great. We've had huge talent uh, from the musical theater over the years. Tay Diggs and Sara Ramirez. And uh, I mean, oh, my God. I'm like, what? It's so much fun. We just had uh, the actress. Oh, gosh, I'm blanking on her name, but she won a Tony for Dear Evan Hansen. She played the mom in Dear Evan Hansen. And we just had Rachel. uh, Rachel. She was fabulous in Pippin. Oh, my God. I've been listening to the Pippin soundtrack. That's what. I clean, I do, I walk, I clean the kitchen to the Pippin soundtrack these days. She she's gave me the chills in that show. I just thought, I thought, who are you? I adore her. She's amazing. And, and, and everybody who's listening to this right now is screaming her name, Rachel. I'm looking, I've got to look it up. Rachel. Um, I'm going to look up Dear Evan Hansen cast. She was amazing. And yeah. Sarah Ramirez was amazing. Shonda and I have a love of Rachel Bay Jones is her name. Yes. 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 She's extraordinary. And she just came in and did a beautiful guest star. One episode, just gorgeous work this season. Uh And, you know, musical theater is a thing that Shonda and I both love. And, and a lot of the writers, a lot of our writers come from theater and Mm. it's a thing we have in common. I directed an episode of Grey's Anatomy last year and we our our episodes are always titled after songs. And mm. episode my directorial debut was called Anybody Have a Map from Dear Evan Hansen. Oh, I love that song, The Two Moms. Oh God, I love it. I love so it. So good. Yeah, I, I actually as I'm listening to or watching the show, I just feel the music undertow. It's just does the music come first or does the scene come first or does it go back and forth? The scene comes first. So we write the episode, it's titled after a song that usually is just like there's some theme or some, the writer just picks a song basically. And usually the title of the song reflects the theme of the episode. So Mm. that's how the episode is titled. But then in terms of the music in the show, it's always been a huge character in the show, but the, we write the episode and then we shoot the episode and then the editors put together the episode and they place the songs and uh, if we, and then we get the cut and if, if we don't love the song, if I don't, you know, it's the showrunner. So if right now, if I don't love the song, the editor placed, uh, we've got this music supervisor, Alex Patsavis, who just submits incredible CDs full of, or it's not CDs anymore. That's how old I am, Susanna, but she just <laughs> online in the Dropbox, just great playlists uh, full of songs and she'll read the script and she'll submit songs that she thinks might work over the sequences she reads in the script. And we have all of those to play with. And we try and try and try 
until we find the right song. And if we don't find the right song, we um, often ask someone to cover a song, to, mm. to a song for a certain sequence. It's really a gift. I, it's one of my favorite parts of the process. What an incredible opportunity also just to, you know, shine a light on an artist. And that's, that's fantastic. I love that. Yeah. So how do you keep all your ideas straight since you're a procrastinator? I'm not sure how that, uh, what do you mean? You know, it, the first question was, how do you keep your ideas straight? And it wasn't at all about procrastination. What I really meant was, how do you keep your ideas straight when you have so many things bubbling up all the time? How do you keep them in their proper place channel, you know? Yeah. So I, how do I keep all my ideas straight when my brain and physical space are both chaos? <laughs> yes. Yes. You phrased that much better than I did. You know, I don't keep them straight. I'm, I'm not, uh, I, it really is chaotic. If you saw my office or, or even like my computer desktop, uh, it's chaotic, but because chaos is a part of my process, it's not, it's a nonlinear keeping straight. So it's almost as if, um, the right idea pops up when it needs to out of Mm. the chaos, out of the pressure. It's like, everything gets, I put ideas on scraps of paper and I put ideas in the notes app in my phone and I put ideas in documents on my computer and I carry it all around in my brain like a pressure cooker. And then something pops up. It's like a whole bunch of coal that gets compressed and then the diamond sparkles through of what I need. Wow. Grab hold of it. I, I, it's sort of an indescribable process, but also sincerely, I have a huge army of paid help. <laughs> so I've got a lot of assistants at the office who help me remember things that I said in the writer's room, um, mm. or that, you know, write down everything that gets said in the writer's room and, and they've got, they're younger and they have better memories and I'll, <laughs> and also all of the writers. So I'll be like, what was that thing that we landed on last week about, you know, G- uh, DeLuca, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, things so great that we said, and, and my brain can't call it back, but I feel like it applies right now. And then they'll, they'll all pull up their notes or their memories and be like, it was this, no, it was that, no, it was this. And we go, Oh, and something in the conversation of everybody shouting out the things, the mm-hmm. story merge, or we grab hold of the, of whatever is the thing. It's not an ideal process for people who are the opposite of me, who, mm-hmm. who order, but they've learned how to work with me. <laughs> I love that. I, so you're just, you've got the two kinds of minds in the same room using each other to their best advantage. Yes. That's really cool. Is there a, a book about writing that you've loved that you would pass on to other writers? Um, there are several books that I love, uh, that let me think about ones that, that really have helped me. I will tell you that the book that I used when I was becoming a TV writer, I was doing theater in Portland by day and I was learning how to write scripts as a hobby. And there wasn't really quite yet an internet, like the internet happened while in the early years that I was in Portland or it was sort of, there was, there was an internet, but it, there was not a, a lot of information yet. And mm-hmm. so 
And at that time, there there was only one book that I could find that had one chapter on how to work in television, how to write in television. And I remember it was called Successful Script Writing by mm. the, the writers were, their last names were Wolf and Fox. And, uh, and I read that chapter over and over and over and I did what they said. So I remember that. But in terms of like just great reads on writing, I love William Goldman's books, um, mm. uh, which lie did I tell and adventures in the screen trade. And, um, I love Anne Lamott's book bird by bird, which mm. gives you little writing prompts. I love a book, um, called writing down the bones by Natalie Goldberg. Yes. Um, and then I just think reading good writing, if people are lacking inspiration, just reading deep and truthful, soulful writing. I love Cheryl Strayed, who mm. in Portland, I love Tiny Beautiful Things. If you just need, it, it's like sometimes just reading a few pages, that book is written as, you know, le- like letters and answers, right? It's written as, it's it's a collection of advice columns. Mm-hmm. but when I'm feeling stuck or blocked to read at someone else's beautiful, vivid, truthful, soulful writing helps me. Mm. I'm obsessed with untamed right now by Glennon Doyle. It's not a book on writing, but I'm just Mm -hmm. the book. Um, so yeah, what else, what other books on writing have I read? Not very many, Mm. not very many. I really learned how to write by watching watching, watching TV and, and movies and reading scripts. I did a huge amount of reading scripts in order to learn how to write them. What are your, some of your favorite films? Shakespeare in Love is my favorite. Oh, I love that. That came out, I think maybe when you still were living here. I think it may have, it may have. Um, one of the, here's a fun story about Shakespeare in Love. I, God, I love that movie. I'm such a romantic and I, you know, I studied Shakespeare in college and, and I just, I just love everything about that movie. I'm going to make my kids watch it soon. Um, <laughs> my funny story about that is that when we were in college studying Shakespeare, um, I vividly remember Zach, a friend, my friend, Zach being like, wouldn't it be funny? Like basically Shakespeare was like the screen, like the beat up screenwriter of his day, like getting crappy, crappy studio notes. So Zach, Zach, his last name was Norman, Zach Norman, his Mm -hmm. dad movie from that idea of Zach's, which I didn't even know when I saw the movie. So I love that story. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah. So yeah, I love Shakespeare in love. I love Moulin Rouge. I love the princess bride boy. Mm. Perfect. Perfectly structured movie. That is, um, uh, we were just talking. I love, I love Shawshank Redemption. Oh, yeah. That's beautiful, heavy hitter. Like Moonlight for me was beautiful and weighty. Gorgeous, gorgeous. Yeah. Moonlight was gorgeous. I was obsessed with Parasite this year. I couldn't believe oh. it. Couldn't believe it. Oh, God, we were screaming. Amazing. Yeah, Amazing. me too. It was, you couldn't look, at a, look away. It was so beautiful and so brutal. Oh, God. Speaking of beautiful, let me tell you, last night I sat down and watched Unorthodox on Netflix. Oh. One of the best television shows I have ever seen. It is, is it the one about the young woman who leaves the Orthodox family? Yes. It is exquisite, mm. mesmerizing television. It's 
just beautiful if somebody mm. something to inspire them. I can't wait. I, I, I watched the first three hours and then I had to go to bed. So I'm <laughs> going to watch the last hour tonight. Um, so I know you're, you're writing a show right now. Yeah. And so while you're writing one show, do you write things simultaneously or how do you prioritize? Yeah. Um, I'm working right now on a project called Rebel that is a pilot for ABC inspired by the life of Aaron Brockovich today. And uh, we were making the pilot, but we had to stop production. And so ABC ordered a writer's room so that even though they haven't quite ordered it to series, uh, they want me to write a bunch of scripts so that in case they decide to order a series, we can hit the ground running when, whenever we're able to get back to production. Mm. Um, and, but, but I think your question is about like, how do you multitask creatively in the way that I have to, because I was running Grey's Anatomy and Station 19 this year while writing the pilot for Rebel. And that is a lot of work. I wrote, you know, because I wrote the season premieres, I wrote multiple episodes of those shows and I was show running them, which means uh, I was reading and noting and, and rewriting and editing and placing music and all of the things, uh, you know, production meetings and going to set sometimes and all the things that a showrunner does while also writing multiple scripts with multiple characters. Mm -hmm. And I think that someone who is less um, comfortable with chaos might think that that amount of jobs is crazy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I don't know a lot of people who could do that many different shows and carry and remember and think about that many different characters. But, um, but I do. And I don't know how to explain how I do it, except that thing I said about the coal. It's like a whole bunch of lumps of coal and they all go in and then mm -hmm. what is supposed to come out, comes out and comes forward. I also am very good at um, tuning out the entire world. So I, I, I often think that it's rooted in a traumatic childhood that the same, you know, my house was chaos uh, and my, parents were chaotic and uh, violent and uh, abusive and neglectful and uh, depending on which house I was in the various <laughs> adjectives would would apply mm -hmm. um, there was no actual safety in my childhood and so I found my safety in books and I could disappear into them for many 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 hours and now that same, skill set that evolved as a child is the skill set that allows me to disappear in the chaos of a workday into writing um, for whatever moments I have. So back when I was working on one TV show and I was the head writer, I would deep dive into a script and I could do it for 12 or 15 or 16 hours in order to make a deadline then that maybe it was shooting the next day. Now I'm not the head writer and I don't have that kind of time to write because I'm producing so much of the time. But what that, what that ability to disappear into creativity in the midst of chaos gives me is if, if something needs to be rewritten and I've said it a lot of times and, and whoever's writing it can't quite get inside my head and I need to go do it myself kind of thing. 
I can close the door and disappear into it. Even if I've only got 25 minutes, mm. I instantly go into that creative place. I don't have the way a lot of artists have. It's like they need a certain uh, amount of silence or they need a certain amount of prep. Like they need to walk around the hills and think and, or they need to meditate. Like I, I've talked to a lot of writers about the things that they need in order to tap into that create creative place that allows them to write well. I do not need anything. All I need is a tight deadline. Mm. And then I can disappear into the creative place instantly. Like whether I can close my office door or whether I'm sitting on a set with 200 people working around me, I can mm-hmm. to the scene that needs to be written uh, and disappear. And what happens when I'm writing is I can't hear or see anything else that's happening. Mm. So, and I mean that literally, like if I'm writing and I say, oh, I'm so hungry. And I ask my assistant to bring me some soup. Then I might look up two hours later and go, oh my God, I'm so hungry. And then realize that the assistant came in, walked past me, put down the soup, told me the soup was there. And now the soup is cold because I didn't see or hear her come into the room. <laughs> I, I love, you know, in that description of your life and how, this chaos and definitely difficulty has just blossomed and made your life beautiful. Yeah, it's really, I am, um, I am a silver linings addict and I, I really can take all of the chaos of my childhood and the skill sets that I learned to survive. And I can see the way those skill sets have served me in my thriving today Mm-hmm. but that is, but I will say like also 25 years of therapy, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, that this is not an excuse to abuse or neglect your children. <laughs> no, I, I could not agree more. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I just, I know you're on a deadline and I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me and everyone is going to be so inspired by this. And especially I was thinking about what you were talking about you know, the various shows that you've done over these years, it would be so much fun to, to follow a, a showrunner like you and see what shows they did and watch them together. You know, I, I wondered how some of these ideas bleed into each other and probably some of them don't at all. But you, you, like you said, you've got a unique voice that's going to come through in all your work. Yeah, I mean, I've got a unique voice. Yes, I have points of view, I think, and and. Uh, it's been point, pointed out to me that writers in TV, that we all have favorite words and turns of phrase, that if mm-hmm. you follow, you'd, you'd find those words and turns of phrase in a lot of the work. Um, but part of your job is to subvert your own voice to the, to whatever degree you can mm-hmm. write in someone else's voice. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I've, I, my credits, my first hour of TV was an episode of Law and Order, mm-hmm. Not. And then I went to write a show called Time of Your Life, which was a spinoff of Party of Five that followed Jennifer Love Hewitt as she moved to New York and tried to become a singer while waiting tables. Oh, my gosh. And then after that, I did Charmed, which was about sister witches. Uh, mm. seasons. And then I did Wonder Falls for a season. And then I did Grey's Anatomy for seven seasons. And then I went and I did Shameless for five right. 
which really is wildly different than any of those yeah. shows I just made. And then I came back to Grey's Anatomy. So uh, it's it's a pretty... And in that time, I also wrote 12 or 13 pilots that didn't go to series. And five of them got made. So I got the experience of making the pilot, but then it didn't go to series. So there's there's been a huge amount of output in the... It, this is... By the way, Susanna, this is 20 years this year that I've wow. been um, writing and producing television. And uh, that can't be right. That can't be right because it's 2020 and I moved here in the 90s. It must be more than 20 years now. A- anyway, sorry. I I'm, I'm think now I'm, I've got lost in the year, trying to remember what years I lived in Portland. I think it was 95, 95 to 97 maybe. Was I in Portland? 96 to 98, something like that. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking, I got lost in the idea of your anniversary moose that your stepson could make you. <laughs> <laughs> if I, if only I could figure out what year my, is my 20 year anniversary. Well, the nice thing is if you keep shooting for it and being wrong, you can just kind of keep revising it for different desserts every year or week. <laughs> That's right. Adrian, make me something new. <laughs> I feel an anniversary coming on. <laughs> Just any anniversary. Like I've got so many of them. <laughs> Krista, thank you so much for talking to me. I, I've just personally so enjoyed it. And I know everybody is going to love hearing all your thoughts about writing and your life and just have a fabulous day. Be safe. I, I wish you love to everybody you're in touch with in your family and kids and husband and um, bubble of happiness over the whole world right now. Thank you, Susanna. I really want to send my love out to that Portland theater community. Uh, I, I loved my years in Portland and I loved my years doing theater there. And, and, uh, those years really shaped me and helped me. And I, I really, I send my love to anyone who's listening, who, who I got to know back in the day. Well, big hugs to you. And I hope your next 18 hours are super fruitful. (laughs) Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Adventures in Artslandia We've shared our points of view This is David Safford playing Adventures in 